Thank you, Francois. If you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 5. We are finishing chapter 5 today. Uh, The Apostle Paul is writing to a church that was gravitating toward a theology, a a distortion of the gospel that uh, based their relationship with God on their obedience to the law. The law of God, if you obey it, this is what promotes you in relationship with God. This is what settles your relationship with God, seals it, gains God's, gains God's approval. And the question is, why? Why did they gravitate toward that? Why did that teaching appeal to them? Um, I love the way James talks about temptation in his letter. Um, he says all Satan has to do, Satan doesn't tempt you, okay? Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. You're not big enough for him to to be busy with, okay? Um, James says all Satan has to do is put out the lures, and he puts those lures out through culture, through through forces in your community and in your life. Um, He puts out lures through your phone. (laughs) He puts out lures in in your home um, through how people trigger you with what they say. He puts these lures out. That's all he has to do. And it's our heart that says, I like that lure. I like that one. Uh, we went fishing on fall, over fall break, and we were using uh, dead shrimp. And they loved it. And I thought, well, if dead shrimp will catch stuff this big, I wonder what a, a fake spoon will catch. So I hooked that thing on, threw it out there. Nobody wanted it. It did not appeal. So I... After about 20 minutes, I said, well, no one's liking this, so I'm going to try something else. I put something else on. This is all Satan does, is he puts lures out, and it's something within us that says, I want that. I like that. And then when that thought, that premonition, that desire grows, it gives birth. It, it, it hatches, and, and sin comes. Actions come. Our desires are sinful, but they reveal what's going on in our heart, and, and so Satan appeals to that. Well, it's almost as if Paul is asking the Galatians, why does this appeal to you? Something in you likes legalism. Now, there's another group, and that's the, the libertines, the people who were, who were using their freedom to indulge the flesh. So there's, there's two groups, but the main one are the people who say, I think that what's important for God is for me to work really hard to obey so that I can please him, so that I can be in his good favor. And there's something in them that that, 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 that appeals to. And there's something in us that, 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 that appeals to that, that likes that, that feels good about that. And so as we come to the end, Paul's making kind of his closing arguments on this idea that the Spirit is this new way of living. Uh, You can define yourself, if the podium uh, is the law of God, you can define yourself by your obedience to it. I love the law of God. I work really hard to obey it. Or you can define yourself by how far away you can get from it. Children often do this with parents, right? Teenagers, I want to get as far away from my parents. I want to look like them, act like them, sound like them, be them. I want to be different. And then some children are, I want to be just like my parents. However you define yourself, the thing that's defining you is still the law. 
And Paul says, no, 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 there's another way. It shouldn't be either of these because you're still defining yourself by the law and how you respond to it. And so he's coming to the conclusion where he's saying the Spirit is the thing that defines you now, the new life that you've been given by the Spirit, the new creation that you are in Christ. That's what defines you. The indwelling, personal presence of Christ through his Spirit. It's Christ's Spirit. And so he's with us, and he is leading us, and we are under his influence. And so Paul's going to make some applications to that. Here's the text. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. What does conceit do? What does conceit look like? Provoking one another or envying one another. So the lesson is the Spirit of Christ leads us in the opposite of what is appealing about this new way of, uh, about this old way of living, this legalism. Whatever's appealing, and he calls it conceit, that thing the Holy Spirit is leading us away from. Our desires and the Spirit's desires are in conflict. Our desires are centered around conceit. The Spirit's desires are centered around Christ and not us. Our desires are centered around self. The Spirit's desires are centered around God. So the Spirit is actually leading us in humility, which is the root of God's graces, as I think it was Andrew Murray who said. The root. I love his little book on humility. Uh, maybe that's John Murray, but it, Murray, I know that. Um, but his book on humility is just fabulous because it's it's the root. It's James says, "Humble yourselves before the Lord." Why? Because God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So let's look at the text. Let me let me try and make some points. The first two points we've talked about because Paul's brought them up before. The apostle has already talked about these things. But he's, he's saying them again. And that we, we ought to take note. So let's take note, but let's go through them. First of all, life by the Spirit is life with the Spirit. This is what he says in the first verse. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Um, it's an if-then. If this is true, then. Uh, but because Paul has been teaching that you are a believer because of the Spirit of God, not because of you. You didn't wake up one day and want to believe. You woke up one day and the Spirit regenerated you, gave you life, and you believed because that's what you could do now. You couldn't do that as a dead person, as someone who was spiritually dead. And what matters is that new life, Paul says in chapter 6, verse 15, that new creation the spirit that gave you life based on the resurrection of Christ, Galatians 1, 1 and 2, based on the power of God, he gave you life. And if that's true, that that's where it started and that God then by faith justified you and made you right with him, if that's true, which is what he's been teaching, then life by the spirit is life lived with the spirit. You can't divorce the two. You can't separate the two. Uh, you can't say, well, I, the Spirit of God gave me life, but now it's up to me. No. The Spirit of God gave you life. The life is lived now with the Spirit of God in His power, in His wisdom, in His direction. Um, the with the Spirit part is the kind of the imperative. If there's an indicative, this is true, then there's an imperative. And that is that we walk by the Spirit. 
We keep in step by the Spirit. He uses a lot of, a lot of uh, language in the text. He talks about walking with the Spirit, being led of the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and here keeping in step with the Spirit. The idea is if you've, if you've been to an elementary school, which we have one um, in, our, in our church here, it's a fabulous school, and whenever the kids go to use the restroom or go outside, they line up and they follow the teacher. And the teacher leads them out to wherever they're going. And they're supposed to be in line. And I really work as the pastor who's walking through not to disrupt the line, not to break the line, not to distract them from the line. You know, and, and sometimes I see a child that I know and they go, Pastor Tim, and I'm like, what do I do? You know, do I, yay, or do I, you know, don't, don't, don't talk to me, you're in line. Um, I usually wave and get as excited as they are. But um, the idea is you get in line, you get in step, and you keep and you follow. Uh, this is the language here. If the Spirit of God is the one who gave you life, then you get in step with him. And you follow him. You come under his influence um, through the means of grace that God has given you. It's, it's this desire to know what he is saying through his word, to know and hear his voice through the preaching and the ministry of the word, through prayer, through the community of faith, through the sacraments, to hear the voice of God and the spirit of God leading you. Um, he says that life in the flesh is life apart from God, but life in the spirit is is life in the presence and with and following uh, the, the Spirit of God. The presence and the activity of the Spirit uh, in your life is Paul's emphasis for our salvation and for our sanctification, for what brought you into the family of God and what maintains you in the family of God. Uh, the Spirit is the central figure uh, for your growth in grace. This is why he says, uh, just the verse earlier in verse 24, those who belong to Christ, something has happened to them. If you belong to him, you did not belong, and that's it. Something else traveled with belonging. Belonging to Jesus comes with crucifying the flesh, which is what Jesus did on the cross. The power of your flesh, that old sinful nature, has actually been conquered, and there's a death that occurs so that you are now free by the Spirit, alive in Christ, now able to live for Him. All right, so that's life by the Spirit is life with the Spirit. You can't separate the two. Okay, which, which by the way, Paul banks on that. He kind of uses that to say, and that means you're going to grow in grace, whether you like it or not. I like, I like what Kevin said this morning, that we put ourselves through, at, at Outback Ranch, they put themselves through voluntary hardships, Right? Voluntary, I, love, I almost laughed, but I decided I better be more demure. Um, voluntary hardships. I don't like putting myself through voluntary hardships. Um, sometimes I, I do that through stupidity, and now I'm in a, a, a you know, a volunteer. I volunteered for this because of my stupidity, but, you know, God always has a way of getting us to be more focused on Him, and sometimes it's involuntary hardships. <laughs> In fact, I, I love the, what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, uh, he says count, uh, consider the hardships, um, training from the Lord. This is God. God trains us. He puts us through hardships, and it gets our attention focused back on him. Um, suffering is sometimes the, the loud voice box of God calling us back to himself, waking us back up to, uh, to the influence and the, the need to be influenced by the Holy Spirit. 
and to keep in step. All right, so that's, that's his point. The law and the flesh do not produce life. He has said that. This is the counter of what he's saying here. If, if, I get, if I'm alive by the Spirit, then I walk by the Spirit. If that's the combo, and, um, and, and Paul, is, Paul uses the word if, it's probably better translated sense because he's not questioning his own teaching. He's not saying, you know, if I, what I was telling you is true. He was saying, since this is true, this is the outcome. But um, this is kind of the opposite way of saying it, and he's said it before. The law and the flesh don't produce anything but corruption and sin. Uh, the law and the flesh cannot produce life in you. They cannot free you. They cannot regulate your sin, regulate your flesh. They have no power. In fact, the way Paul says it in Romans 7, the law actually inflames my sin. Something about the law telling me not to do something makes me want to say, oh yeah, um, I'll do it. I'll do it just to prove I'm free, just to prove I'm independent from the law which is actually playing into the very, the very hand that I've been dealt. Um, the Spirit is the one who actually regulates our flesh. If you're struggling with your desires, hear me? If you're struggling with your desires, you're going to have to come under more influence from the Spirit. And as the Spirit creates in you faith and love, it will push out those desires. You will find yourself choosing to follow Jesus and to obey him. It's not, you, you don't have the power to overcome your desires. He does. Okay, so the flesh can't do that. The law can't do that. This is how Paul says it in Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by your flesh, yours is added, weakened by the flesh. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law and your flesh are not friends. They work against each other. The law calls you to holiness. The flesh says, either I'm going to try it, I'm going to define myself by the law, I'm going to try and do as best I can and work really hard and still fall short, or I'm just going to run from it. The law and the flesh are not friends, uh, and the law ends up just condemning the flesh and inciting more sin. So here's what he says. By send, how did God do this? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned the sin in our flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Did you catch that? Let me read that part again. That's really important. In order that the righteous requirement, you are required to be righteous, but in order for that to happen, God sent his Son so that that requirement could actually be fulfilled in you. Not by your effort. We don't walk according to the flesh. We walk according to the Spirit. And as we keep in step, come under more and more the influence of the Spirit, we actually start being conformed to the image of Christ. We actually start to live righteous lives. Um, The Galatian believers were moving toward a Christianity that fundamentally believed their efforts to obey the law of God somehow qualified them with God. And so Paul says, if you got your life by the Spirit, you got to walk in the Spirit. Remember, the law and the flesh can't do anything. They cannot make you holy. They cannot make you righteous. They, they will not spur you to obedience. Grace, the Spirit, spurs you to obedience. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the law, but you have to read the law of God in light of the gospel 
like we tried to do this morning. Okay? Like we tried to do this morning, when we look at the Ten Commandments, where does it lead us? It leads us to Jesus. Trying to live by the flesh is pride. This is what he means. This is what he says in the next verse. Let us not become conceited. Now, you notice the word become. You notice two things. Number one, Paul says, let us. So Paul is not speaking to you. Paul has now included him in the us. Let us. Paul sees himself in need, in peril. Okay? Let us not become. The become tells you it hasn't matured yet, that this pursuit that the Judaizers are trying to get the Galatians to conform to Jewish law as part of their Christianity. This, this conceit, whatever, the, whatever is coming, hasn't come to fruit, hasn't matured yet. But it's present, and they're leading. They're, they're heading that direction. So he, he talks about the problem. Let us not become conceited. Now the word, and, and I put it up here, I think this is in the King James, is vain glory. Okay, now let's look at the word. Just look up on the screen. The word glory, okay, honor, value, respect, praise. It's glory that is empty. It's glory that has no weight. If glory as a word means weighty, then you put the word vain in front of it and it's weightless weight. Okay, weightless weight. What is he talking about? What is weightless weight? Glory from who? Because I tell you, glory from God is weighty weight. It'd be glory, glory. It'd be weighty glory. Okay, but glory from men, the praise of men, is empty weight. It's weightless weight. It's meaningless. And so Paul is, is saying, don't become conceited. Don't be filled with pride, with conceit, with glory that is without, without, without weight. And he's talking about, he's addressing what they're pursuing in their obedience to the law. And they're trying to conform to Jewish law as a way of reconciling themselves with God and being, being merit, having merit with God. And he says that's just meaningless. And it's tearing you guys apart. Read the text. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Look up at verse 14. I'm sorry, verse, verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. See, this is what, this is what they're struggling with. They're trying to maneuver within the community of the church within the Galatian churches, they're maneuvering to have weight, to have respect, to have glory. But it's an empty glory. It's a weightless glory. It's meaningless. It doesn't carry anything with God, who's the one who really matters. It might carry some weight in your culture, but it carries no weight with the Lord. Um, it's, it's, look what I did. It's this this desire to, to try and show performance. Look how I did. Look, I haven't had a ticket in a long time. Whenever I say that, man, I want to I knock on wood. I want to say, God, if that's proud, forgive me. I don't need to be taught a lesson, right? Um, people look at their credits. Look at my credit score. Look what I did. 
Wow, you've got a great credit score. Empty weight. Empty glory. Look how healthy I am. You know, um, how did you live to be 100? Clean living. Look what I did. Look how clean living I... How did your children turn out the way they did? Good parenting. Good parenting. Empty weight. Weightless glory. Meaningless. Right? How did you afford so much? Good education. How did you advance in your company so well? Hard work. I mean, this... Look what I did. And Paul says that's that's what's destroying you. And that is what is appealing. That's what causes this legalistic system to be appealing. This is why it's appealing. This is why Satan can dangle the performance lure out there. And so many of us, and we are, let let me just tell you, let me speak to my people here, okay? You are a performance-rich people. You are a high-performance group. It is in your nature. It is how you were raised. It is what you have worked for and how you achieve. You are high achievers. You are high performers. And praise God for that. Seriously. Praise God for that. But be careful with that. Because that can be weightless glory. This is why performance theology appeals to us. This is why grace doesn't appeal to us. The pursuit of vainglory is illustrated by Peter when Gentiles come into the church, sit down with him and are eating and they're having good fellowship, and then Jewish Christians from Jerusalem show up and he backs away and says, look how clean I am. I'm still clean. Look what I did. Look how I maintained my cleanliness. I love what Keller says. He says this comes out of a deep insecurity. It comes out of a deep insecurity that I need glory and that I don't have it. I need glory and I don't have it. By the way, the law just exposes that, right? The law just shows us for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The law of God is brutal on people who are looking to themselves for righteousness. So if you tell me, Tim, I don't want to read the law of God, I would agree with you. (laughs) I'm there, right? Unless I can run to Jesus, unless my identity is firmly rooted in him, the law is brutal. Um, But it comes out of a deep insecurity, a perceived absence of honor, Keller says, that leads to a need to prove my worth to myself and others. It leads to a need for me to prove my worth to myself and others. I've got to prove to me that I'm worthy, and I've got to prove to others that I'm worthy. Um, One of the quotes that has really, this is, if you don't hear anything else I say, hear this. 
This one really zingered me. This one really the Holy Spirit used to challenge me in some things that I'm wrestling with right now with him. This is from John Stott. How I treat others is based on my own self-image. How I treat others is based on my own self-image. If I see myself as lacking honor, then I'm going to try and earn honor with you, and somehow your honor is going to make me feel better about myself. Or I'm going to look at the honor you have, and I'm going to envy it, and I'm going to despise you for having more of that honor that I want, that respect, that weight, that glory. The gospel actually humbles me as a sinner, saved by grace, and then it exalts me in Christ, who is exalted at the right hand of God the Father Almighty for being a servant, for being glorious. This is one of your study questions as we look at Philippians chapter 2. This deep insecurity and lack, perceived lack of honor, makes me want to earn my worth through performance. To that degree, in comparison with others, I will be operating out of one of two ways. A sense of superiority or a sense of inferiority. If I'm operating to prove my worth, to demonstrate my value, then I will have either superiority or a sense of inferiority, and really it depends on who I'm talking to. It depends on who I'm comparing myself to. And this is why Paul says the result of conflict is all, I mean, the result of pride is always conflict. You just can't escape it. It's provocation or it's envy. If I feel superior, then I'm going to provoke you. I I love this word. It means to to invite you, to call you out to what? To call you out to what? Competition. To competition. Let's compare what you did with what I did. Let's compare how much you've saved with how much I've saved. It's really embarrassing when your children have more in savings than you do. I want to remind them it's because I spent my savings on you. (laughs) I got off track. (laughs) That made me laugh. (laughs) Sorry. Um. It, it, the, word, the word provoke means to call out to competition. It means to say, hey, come here, let's compete. Let's compete when it comes to parenting. Let's compete when it comes to how, good of, how, how often I had devotions. Let's compete. Let's, let's compare scorecards. Let's compare scorecards. Let's see how we're doing. And guys, it is so subtle. This does not happen in any, in any formal way. I have never seen Chris Martis come up and sit down with Gary Paradise and say, okay, Gary, Let's get our tally sheets out. I've never seen that happen. But I have been in conversations where I have felt like saying, oh, so you have parenting righteousness? And I have been in conversations where I've heard myself saying, I have parenting righteousness in little subtle ways. You know, he's just a hardworking kid. That's just how we raised him. And I'm thinking, what? This is so ingrained in how we communicate. And you don't even realize you're doing it. But you all, this is where Stott's quote comes. You always relate to others based on how you think about yourself. So I'm either provoking you, calling you out, let's compete, let's compare tally sheets, or I'm envying you. I'm looking at 
your children and going, man, maybe I should have done it differently. I'm looking at your performance and saying, I, I don't like you because you outperform me. And my worth is tied to my performance. Whenever your worth is tied to anything but the creator and his redeeming son and the life-giving spirit, it will be empty glory, weightless weight, meaningless. And it will destroy you and it will destroy your relationships and it is destroying East Cobb. It is destroying our community. It is. It's destroying our world. Folks, think about our, po- our politics. Well, I, look how hard I have lived to protect the environment. Here's my tally sheet. And then some people just, you know, don't care about the environment. Some of us, most of us are somewhere in the middle, right? Trying to do our part, but not go radical. And we're all just comparing our tally sheet. If I were to use his name, Donald Trump, some of you would say, I'm going to run as far away. I do not identify with him. He is not my president. Some of you would say, I love him. He is God's rescuer for us. Whatever your position, guess who your identity is based on? You're you're identifying yourself based on a person. And your performance is now based on how you view yourself in relation. Our political world is a madhouse because we're just trying to outperform each other and prove our value and and get you on our side and we're turning into little tribes. And it's destroying the church because it's infected us. It's infected how we think and how we live with each other. We, We have our tally sheet of how good of an American we are, what things we believe, and it's just comparison and envy. It's provocation and envy. It's hunger for honor. It's respect and hunger. What is that? Respangry? Vangry? I'm vangry. I'm hungry for glory, for empty glory. I'm glangry. Maybe that's the better word, right? I'm glangry. I want glory, and I'm hungry for it. This is hangry, okay? Um, superiority, I'm better than you based on my tally sheet. And inferiority, I'm not as good as you, and I despise you for being better than me, having more than me, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to be patient and kind to you because I feel less than around you. And, and by the way, when you start feeling less than, you're never going to blame yourself, Right? You're never going to say, well, I feel less than you, and it's, it's, it's my fault. I have had some failures in my life. I have not been wise. Praise God, he loves me. You're never going to turn the mirror inward. You're always going to say, you know, I feel less than you because the world hasn't been fair to me, because of the parents I had, because of where I was economically or racially or socially. It, the world's not been fair to me, so I'm against you. 
What's, what's the result of pride? It's always conflict. And it comes either superiority or inferiority. And I know it's hard to, to, to address that, to say, well, I feel less than, and it's, it's pride? Yeah, it's still pride. So the result of pride is always conflict, and that's what Paul says is destroying the church. That's what's destroying the community. Let me make some applications. Number one, Satan is skilled at division. Did you know that? He is a skilled divider. But so are we. And until we realize the problem is not Satan. I mean, he's a problem. The problem is internal. Until we realize that, we're never going to be able to, to, to heal our relationships We're never going to be able to forgive each other. We're never going to be able to overlook each other's personality quirks and foolishness and whatever. We're never going to do that because we're always either, we're always evaluating others based on how we view ourselves. God's gifts can become a source of pride for us. And I wonder if they have. I wonder if you look at your education and how hard you've worked, how much money you make, how much you have, where you are in life, how your children, I, I, how your children have turned out, what you've done for the church. This is, this is an easy one for Satan. Look how much I've done for the church. You never, you never say as a pat, you know, when, when that person's saying that, you never look at the person and go, more than Jesus, I'm sure. <laughs> but you want to sometimes. I don't. I don't. I have a cleaner record than that. You know, yes, you are the biggest sufferer in the room, my friend. No one has given more and done more to the church than you. Not. Um, but these are gifts, the things that we have. And what do we have, Paul says, that you haven't received? These things become sources of pride for us. And it's, it's empty glory. It's weightless. Right? It's weightless. It carries no meaning, no value other than to ourselves and to our culture. Um, how we relate, and, and I want to leave you with, with not, I'm not going to leave you with this one, but how we relate really is the fruit of our identity. And the reason legalism appeals to us, the reason a distorted gospel appeals to us, is because, hey, I, I'm, looking for, for pro, I'm looking for glory here. I'm looking for someone to validate me for my effort. And this is where church can become a very dangerous place because we might believe the gospel, but we still communicate uncleanness and cleanness to each other. I don't know that there's any way around that apart from a revolution of the Holy Spirit, but because it's just so ingrained in who we are, but we have to be alert to it and repent of it when we can and learn to communicate differently with each other. Learn to communicate differently with our guests who come in and don't know they're unclean and think we're clean. Let me tell you, they just don't know us very well. Okay? Um, but how we relate to, to others is the fruit of, of how we think about ourselves. Um, I would challenge you to meditate on, on how do you think about yourself. What's your identity rooted in? Um, who's, whose opinion matters to you, ultimately? I'm not saying that other people's opinions don't hurt. They do. But typically it's wounded pride that hurts, which is weightless glory. Um, let me end with this. You have the spirit of Christ in you as a believer. 
Paul's been teaching us that, right? No doubt, that's what Paul means. That's what Paul understands. You actually have the Holy Spirit, which is called Christ's Spirit, the Spirit of Christ within you. One of your study questions is to go to Philippians 2 and look how the Spirit, what the Spirit of Christ is. It's humility. I'm going to quote Keller again. Humility is not self-disdaining, nor is it self-confident. I'm sorry, not humility. Um, yeah, humility. It's not self-disdaining. You know, oh, poor, woe is me, woe is me, I'm, I'm a bad person. Nor is it any type of self-confidence. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. This is what the Spirit of Christ is doing in our lives. He's calling us to think of ourselves less often. He's calling us to think of others, to think of God and his mercy and grace, to think of others and their needs and how we can minister to them. This is the Spirit of Christ that's in you, leading you to humility, leading you to humility before the presence of God. Let's pray that he does that. Father, thanks for your love. Thanks for your patience, for your grace, and your kindness. We pray together that the Spirit of Christ would lead us to the foot of the cross in all humility. Humble us in your presence. We would say with James that we would submit ourselves this morning to you. We would seek to resist the devil and all his lures and temptations. We would seek to follow the Spirit and be more and more influenced by him and less and less influenced by our own hearts and the culture that we live in. For the glory of Christ.